Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Jack Nicholas. <laughs> we are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. And I am obviously and not known on this. No, <laughs> dude, you are known. Here's the thing. I, look, people... Like you don't, you're not known well enough by people. And I need to take the opportunity to reveal you to people. Yes. And people, and I, I'm seeing you in that golf shirt. Yes. And you're, you're going golfing today on a pristine day. I am. In, in, are you, is the course in Northern Kentucky where it you're going? It is, yes. Yeah. 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 And I don't, I, you know, back years ago before, I mean, I'm talking my son's 20, 23, I guess, but, but back before kids, you know, you had more time, you know, I, I played golf and, and I played every week. I mean, I played, you know, I had a standing game. It was so far, it was so long ago that when we turned the nine, we had to go to the payphone yeah. to call and make our reservation for the following week. Oh, you gotta be no, kidding. Honestly, we played it because it was that busy. It was, that, it, was it was Rancho Park Country Club or Rancho Park Golf Course. It was, a, it was the busiest <laughs> private or bu- busiest public golf course in the country. And, um, oh my God. Yeah. this is in California, in California. And I played, I played with, with, uh, my friend, Joel Murray, who's Bill Murray's brother. And, oh my and God. Bill showed up and played with us a couple of times. And that was a blast. That was so much fun. And he's a pretty good player, right? Yeah. Oh, I mean, joke, joke, joke. And then hit the ball 300 miles down the fairway. It's, you know, straight down. Oh the middle. He was great. He'd said, Pepper, you know, you got to go see my guy down in San Diego. You've, you've got a great swing, but I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll go see your guy, Bill. I just, I'll go jump in my in my car right now and go see you in my Ferrari. Yeah. Well, yeah. So the, the the Ferrari. So the 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 he says the first time I played with him, he says, uh, "Okay, what's the bet?" And I'm thinking, <laughs> man, I got two bucks in my pocket, and I'm hoping to get a tuna fish sandwich after I make that phone call at the turn. And, and he says, he says, "What's a, I?" He says, "Okay, here's the here's the bet." So. We'll partner up, and Joel and I played him, and I forgot who the fourth was. And he says, uh, um, whoever the winners are, the losers have to carry their bags from the eight, from the 18th green, go get their cars, load them up, and we'll be calling you all kinds of names as you're doing that. And so we go, and uh, I <clears throat> lost and had to go get his 1967 Ferrari. And oh. I didn't feel like I lost very much in that bet. Oh my god! And pull it up and load his car, <coughs> load his clubs. Yeah, that was a that's a good wow. memory. I don't know how, how, how we got there, because today, oh my god! Well, it's, it's about being known. <laughs> it was about it's being about known. being known, bro. And you do you do look quite fetching in that golf. Thank you. In that in that, in that golf polo that you're wearing, it's really great. It, and I, it, I hope you have a great time. I, I, it'll be it'll be fun. It will be. Um, I'll be swinging the <laughs> swinging the club a lot. That's for sure. Uh, I'll be swinging the club a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my motto. Kurt, what do you think? Do you like to play golf? Yeah, I go out and I swing that club a like lot. I swing it a lot. <laughs> uh, Oh, we yeah. have been, we are in season three here of the Being Known podcast, and we have been uh, going through Kurt's new book, The Soul of Desire: Discovering the Neuroscience of Longing, Beauty, and Community. And this is episode five. Um, and today we're going to be discussing confessional communities and telling our stories more truly. Uh, great chapter, Kurt. I <clears throat> I loved reading about this, and I 
I learned uh, a little. I learned a little more about um, psychotherapy in this in this chapter as well, um, which I which I thought was was pretty fascinating. You had a. I wish. I, I, of course, I won't be able to find it because, like, like again this week, I've got everything underlined. Um, <laughs> but you sort of gave a little. Um, uh, definition kind of of psychotherapy. Do you remember what that was or do I need to, do I need to find it? Um, not really a definition, but a description. Shoot. Well, maybe, maybe it'll, yeah. maybe, maybe it'll come to you. I mean, maybe you'll find it. Yeah. Anyway. I mean, the, 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 you know, the title of this story is, uh, you know, the, the confessional communities and, and then telling our stories more truly. And in many respects, that's what we are really trying to do. In psychotherapy, I'm, I'm just going to pause for a moment while you're looking. No, go ahead. Is that all right, I'm listening. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, I think uh, I'll, I'll just I'll start with I'll, I'll start with the story and that we that I open with in the chapter. Yeah. And if you, if you find what you're looking for, we can. That's bring right. It I'm up. just going to listen to you now. It's all right. It's uh, so these these two uh, gentlemen who are in the in the in one of these confessional communities, which we'll talk about in a little in more detail in just a moment. These two, Ian and Gabe, and they're having an exchange. And off the top of my head, I, I forget which is talking about which, but, but one starts to talk about, he's just telling his story about his experience growing up in his house. Uh, it might've been Gabe. And then Ian like says, that just makes me so angry. And Gabe's like, I don't, I don't understand what you mean. I'm so angry. And then Ian's like, I, th- I think because Gabe grew up in this house where his, you know, his, his, you know, parents had never really paid much attention to his emotional life. And, but he was having to find ways to kind of like go back home for holidays and he wasn't looking forward to it because of what he was going to run into when he would go back home. And, and, you know, Gabe's in his thirties and he's like, I don't really want to think about it, but I got to go, but I got to go home. And I've learned to kind of put up with all this. And Ian, his, you know, fellow group member is just kind of coming out of his shoes. And of course, Gabe doesn't really understand like what, what's, what are we upset with? And like, Ian's like, I don't know why you're not more angry about this Mm. and so forth. And then, and so I turn to Ian and invite him to like, so what's going on? And not just what's going on, like, why are you upset? Like, why should Gabe not go home for Christmas or for Thanksgiving or so forth? And, and Ian starts to talk about how his own experience is getting evoked by Gabe's story. And Ian goes on to talk about how, you know, he's a guy who's married with three kids and he's this really effective uh, teacher, public school teacher. But he's got two siblings who are, you know, in uh, one's in med school and one's doing something else like making money hand over fist. And all that his mother can talk about are his two siblings. Anytime she talks to him, she's just talking about his siblings. And as Ian starts then to describe how it is that Gabe's story is really evoking his own anger about his own story... Gabe pipes in and says, like, oh, my gosh, it's really hitting me. And Gabe, in that moment, started to become aware, not just of the facts of his story as he'd been telling them for years, but he became connected with the emotion that has been underlying all this for a long, long time, but that he wasn't really able to access until he's in a space where somebody else is telling their story, somebody else who has access to anger, somebody else who's able to name these kinds of things. And as we like to say that 
Um, you know, emotion has this contagious effect about it. Whether we're joy, I mean, like you know, you're 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 watching something on television that, or you're or a movie that's really funny, or you or you go to a stand-up show and like. It's it's the contagion of the of the of the audience, right? It's not just it's not just the comedian himself, right, right. And the same thing is true for our grief, and the same thing is true for our shame. I mean, emotion is contagious. We've talked about this in previous episodes about emotion and its status. And so, what we come to discover is that these, if 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 psychotherapy is really an an, an attempt for us to tell our stories more truly. And by truly, I don't just mean, oh, now I'm finally going to tell the truth as opposed to all the falsehoods. But what I'm really talking about, I'm going to tell it more robustly. I'm going to tell it in all of its fullness. Well, and as a psychotherapist, as the patient tells their story as they know it to be true, you're able to help them see the things that lie underneath that, you know, might be more than just the facts. Right. Right. And so, you know, as therapists, we ask a lot of questions. Well, what were you feeling? Or tell me more about that. There's a a whole range of ways in which we are helping people to slow down their pace and be more observant about the different features of their experience. And, you know, we, when, when God says in Isaiah, right out of the chute, right, right, come, let us reason together. And we hear that reasoning. We, we, and when we modernists, we read that and we, we read that as like, well, let's come and, and rationally, you know, peel the onion back or take a look at this. And so God can explain his position and, you know, demonstrate to us why, what I think isn't true. And a much richer interpretation of that text is God saying, come and let us tell all of your story more truly. Let's tell the whole thing. I'm not trying to just prove to you why the way you're thinking is wrong. I actually want you to discover and to come to terms with how it is that you tell the story the way you do in the first place. And what are the parts of your story where you've experienced trauma and grief and shame that have been foisted upon you, but where also in your story have you experienced those things because of what you do to yourself? Right. So when we're when the whole notion of healing trauma and working through our shame is as much about not just identifying and naming those experiences and micro moments or large macro moments where things have happened to us, but also naming ways in which I've collaborated with evil, ways in which I've made agreements with evil ways in which I've made vows. I'll never trust another person again. Because what I'm really saying underneath is that not only are people not trustworthy, neither is God. Hmm. Because I'm not able to tolerate it. And and, and in so saying, I wound myself without even knowing that I'm doing this. And so for, we're all listening to this. We're, We're recognizing that we may be aware of stories of our own lives in which we know things that have happened to us. And one of the more difficult things for us to come to terms with then is like, in what ways have I collaborated with that story? In the same way, for instance, that Gabe did. In his story, one of the ways that he collaborated with it was, anger is not safe, and so I can't tolerate it, so I'm never going to talk about Hmm. it. And because I don't talk about it, I'm going to have to find a way to contain it, which means I'm going to have to burn energy to contain that, which means I then don't have the energy available to create beauty and goodness in the world. And the only way Gabe is able to access it is if he is circumvented. All of his defenses are kind of circumvented by Ian telling his story. And of course, Gabe doesn't see this coming. Right. 
Now, what's also striking is that there will be other people in the group at the same time. It's, it's happening to them as well. And this is one of those ways in which working in a confessional community is different and an extension of and more than what we would typically do in an individual psychotherapy session in which you have a psychotherapist that is doing this kind of work, but the psychotherapist isn't really revealing too much about himself or herself to the patient, wherein which this becomes like a collaborative sense of equal partnership because we can't afford to do that because there needs to be somebody in the room whose job it is to observe the process. And that still happens in the confessional communities because there are leaders in the room that are doing that, two therapists that are doing this. But the critical mass of people who are doing the work are people who are doing it much more as peers in which we're doing this work together. How much guidance are those counselors giving? Are they, you say they're an observing role, but Mm -hmm. um, are they, they giving more guidance along the way to keep things on track or, yeah? Well, I think that, you know, one of the things that we do as, um, I mean, part of our work is that we, I mean, in some respects, we are like parents in a family Mm -hmm. where we have lots of adult children. And those adult children, there's a lot that they bring to the table if we're going to be in this family process together. But the parents are always still the parents. And at the end of the day, the parents are still responsible. They're where the buck stops in terms of paying attention to the process. Right. And we're the ones that are going to make observations. And we're also going to be the ones that are going to ask the questions. We're also going to be the ones that are going to be asking questions. You know, like, so for instance, in that conversation between Ian and Gabe, at one point I stopped and said, like, Ian, what's happening for you? I mean, Gabe was the one who was telling the story primarily. And I went up, like, what's, what's going on with you, Ian? Now, in most conversations, Ian would just say to Gabe, like, I don't like what you're doing. I wish you would do this. I wish you would do that. And the story is still only all about Gabe. And Gabe could just remain in his postured defense and say, like, no, I'm going to go home to, you know, like, no, I've learned to deal with it. And that's where the story ends. But we come back and say, wait, 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 Ian, help me understand, like, what's happening with you? Like, you're like, you're coming out of your shoes over here right. about what appears to be Gabe's story. And as it turns out, it's not about Gabe's story. Gabe's story begins the process for Ian, and Ian then starts to talk about his story, which, of course, doubles back and outflanks Gabe in ways that Gabe doesn't see coming. Hmm. Now, this gets us to, you know, a couple of things about these confessional communities that I think that are important for us to know. One of the, those things is that um, a couple of reasons why we, you know, this, this notion, if, we're, if, if, if psychotherapy in general is an attempt on everybody's part to tell their story more truly, there are a couple of features that tend to happen in individual therapy. Um, that, that limit it. Now, it doesn't make it wrong or bad, but they, but it limits it, right? Mm-hmm. And so we, we like to say, and, and I tell this to patients right out of the right out of the shoot, right? The moment you start, you're going to try to outflank me. Yeah, I saw that. I, I, I love this part of the book because it, it's just I can just I could see it happening. You know, you could see it happening. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and like they're like, what do you mean? Like I'm paying you. I'm like, why? Why would I? I'm like, yeah, that's the question. Why would you do that? Because. This is, this is the thing, right? Our very, if, if you were completely okay with being healed, like you wouldn't be in my office. But you're in my office because the healing of your trauma 
requires intimacy because intimacy is where it happened. And even though it's the very thing that we long and hunger for more than anything, it's also the thing that terrifies us the most. And so at the very same time that you want to step toward me and I want to step toward you and that you want to allow me to have more access to intimate parts of your story, there will be the part of you that is terrified. It's like Kurt's going to come and he's going to do to you the same thing everybody else did. Yeah. And so you're going to find ways to not tell me things. You're going to find ways to hedge your bets. And you're not even going to be aware that you're doing right. this. This is not like, well, people walk in and they have an estimate of like, here are the things we will talk about and we, we won't talk about these things. No, 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 no. Like, because we've been practicing for so long not talking about these things, we're just automatically really good at not talking about certain things. But my symptoms are such that now I can't keep living, so I got to go see the psychiatrist until the psychiatrist starts asking certain questions. And then we find that I try to outflank him. That's number one. But number two, the other thing that is true is that, as we said earlier, therapists can be revealing of their own story in certain ways, but typically not a lot. And so the patient doesn't really get the opportunity to recognize or to experience another really important element of healing that takes place. And that has to do with my capacity to give generously out of my vulnerability mm -hmm. and weakness to others. So when people then enter into a confessional community, it's like Ian and Gabe, like, it's just a lot harder to outflank eight people than it is to outflank one. And so you have other people's stories that are popping up and getting activated and people are starting to like name things like, oh, I don't know, like, why, why are you upset? Like, what's upsetting about what I said? Well, and this person who's across the room from you can now really represent somebody that sounds like, looks like my dad, my mom, my sister, my wife, my husband, my whoever this is that's really taking on. But the other really powerful element of this is that people have the opportunity to experience what it means to be an agent of healing in the lives of other people when they are revealing of their own vulnerable woundedness. And this is a really big deal because this is what the church is supposed to be about. This is what it means for us to come and receive the word in text and in the Eucharist. And all around that, we have the opportunity to tell our stories more truly. This is what we're, we're, we're gathering to tell the story of the world the way the world really is. And if I were to tell that story fully, like, of course, my church service would last for three hours. Because this week, it's John and Mary Smith's turn to tell their story more truly in our worship service. And we're going to gather around and we're going to pray for them. Well, it's going to take three hours to get through this. And so this notion of experiencing healing by virtue of offering my own vulnerability is another thing that happens in these confessional communities that doesn't get to happen in group therapy, typically. The other thing then that we would say, though, which is true in individual work, but especially in this group work, is that we are assuming the work of the Holy Spirit. We're assuming that. We name it on occasion, but we are assuming this that when these things are revealed, that the Holy Spirit is at work when we name our anger, our shame, our joy, our longings, our griefs, all these things are true. We're also assuming that this process is one of formation. We're being formed by the use of texts of scripture, informed and formed by the use of principles of interpersonal neurobiology, and being formed by these actions of people telling their stories more truly. This is what sanctification looks like. And we, again, use this word confessional, not so much to, we're not emphasizing confession as we think about the church confessing of sin. To confess 
is to tell the truth about everything, not least of which by what I long for, what I long for, what I want to be true in the world. And the more able I am to do this, to tell my story more truly in such a way that I am now no longer alone with my shame, my shame is transformed such that I no longer have to burn the energy that I've typically burned trying to cope with that, contain all that, and that energy is now available to me to co-labor with the other members of this confessional community and with God to create the next new artifact of beauty that God wants to create with me. These kinds of experiences, of course, you know, it, it takes it takes time for these kinds of things to develop. People talk about how they, you know, they're coming into the group and, you know, they've already figured out how they can tell, you know, say what they're supposed to say to a therapist. They've got one person figured out, but now I got like seven people to figure out. It's like I got to be an AWACS, right? Like I'm trying to like contain all these folks. I think it takes courage too. I really do. To walk into a room and be vulnerable like that, I think it takes a tremendous amount of courage. Well, dude, like I'm thinking, okay. You're an actor. Like, you, it's not like you're walking onto a stage. It's not just a room of eight people. Yeah, but that's not, I'm not bearing my own personal truth there. I'm bearing the truth of another character that I've put on. That's an entirely different thing. There's a, there's a, a shield or something between me and, you know, because I'm putting on this mask, right? And you're, t- you're wanting people to come in there and take off any masks that they're wearing yeah. and show themselves in a way that they might not want to show themselves, especially right. to, you know, in the beginning when it's eight strangers, 10 strangers or whatever, you know, yeah. and it's courageous. Yeah. You, you talk in the, in, in the book about some sort of uh, ground rules about, uh, that, that go along with, with a group like this. Mm-hmm. Um, can, yeah. you, can you share some of those? Yeah, so there are some things that we uh, are explicit about. When, you, know, you know, people, um, well, one thing that we tell people is this, is, you know, people, you know, you, you talk about, uh, you say, yeah, this is, well, isn't this just like group therapy? Why do you call it confessional community? Isn't that like, like a, just a dress up term to like hoodwink people into coming in and like being on the Bob Newhart show in some, you know, this is what we're trying to do for those of you who are old enough to remember <laughs> yes. that there was a guy named Bob Newhart yeah. and that he had a show back in the seventies and he was a psychologist and ran group therapy. Here's the thing. What happens in psychotherapy? Like we, we think, oh my gosh, like that's just, that's some weird thing that happened where that's unusual or that's uncomfortable. Like there's like, it's, it's set apart and, let, and then you get into a group. We're going to tell these stories. And here's the thing. This process of telling our story is something that we are doing all day, every day. Later on today, you're going to tell it on the golf course and you're going to tell it in a particular way. And tonight you'll tell it with your family. And, uh, you know, we, we will, we will tell it, we tell our story at work. We tell our story at church. We tell it, we like, we're, we're in the business of doing this all the time. And whether we know it or not, th- this whole notion of like, I'm looking for someone looking for me is in play all the time. The whole longing to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. It's, it's in play all the time. The, my longing to create beauty with somebody else, even who's different from me, the joy of doing that in vulnerability. Like I want to do that, but I've had so much wounding. I've had enough, like, like I learned that like, I'm not stupid and I don't want to live. It's really hard to imagine living in the world the way the world has actually been made (laughs) as God has actually made it. 
And so we can think somehow that, you know, what we're doing here in group somehow is different, unique. And as it turns out, it's just more an explicit way of living in the world the way we always are, except we're just going to tell the truth this time. And so there are many ways in which, you know, we're going to do things that are no different than what we are assuming we want to be true in life in any interaction. When you have an interaction with your grocer, and so some of those rules that apply that are important would be the following. One is uh, we start we start with confidentiality. We start with confidentiality, and of course, we we the, the base word this word confidentiality the, the the word that comes that it comes from is the word confidence. And you know we think like well confidentiality means I'm just not going to tell anything. I'm not gonna, you know what's, what happens in the room stays in the room, and to a certain degree that's a, that's a, you know a simple way of like. That's not untrue. That's a true way. But, but what are we really trying to do with this? What I'm really trying to do is I'm really trying to honor and guard the dignity of everybody's personhood and everybody's story. And I really want to honor that by making sure that what happens in this space is something that we together collectively in our vulnerability in these moments are going to continue to honor even when we're outside the room. This is the other thing, too, that we have to educate people. If you think they're like, oh, I'm going to group therapy for 90 minutes once a week, every week, as if that's the only place where it's happening. Oh, no. No, because you're going to leave. And like after the first couple of times, you'll have said some things. And you're like, God, I wonder if George is going to go home and tell his wife what I just said. And like, oh, it, it doesn't matter that George has said George isn't going to tell anybody. But like, I worry this because like, no, I have plenty of experiences in my life where my, you know, where my dignity has been betrayed by people who've like said things that I've, all the things. Right. Right. And so confidentiality is important in order for us to learn to recognize that our story is really that big a deal. Hmm. It's not just a matter of like, well, make sure that you know that everybody else's story is important. Yeah. No, it like your story is really important. And I'm going to be afraid that people there are not going to think it is. And that's just going to be a reminder of like what I care, what I walk around with all the time, that I have had experiences in which my story has really just been thrown under the bus. So confidentiality is one. Another one is that, of course, you know, we, we have some, you know, we, we, we talk about this notion that we ask this, there are these two questions, what do you want and what are you, you know, what, what are you longing for? You know, what do you want and what is your grief? Like, what do you feel? A lot of those things. And we expect people to be talking about that. We do so because it really helps emphasize what is happening in the room at any given moment. You know, you go in through the checkout line at the grocery store and you get to the end and you're, you know, you've got this person who's done their work and you, you and, and, you know, we've talked in other episodes about going back, you know, days later and thanking them for their work, which of course would be strange enough in its own. But like, even to just stop in that moment and to recognize that this person has, in this moment, has burned energy in checking, like that has done all the work of helping you get through the line. And you just stop and say like, I just notice how hard you're working. And I'm just really grateful for that. In that moment, 
we like, you know, typically my head is already out the door of the grocery store onto the next thing I'm going to do. I'm just like putting groceries in my cart. I'm not even thinking about like, I'm not thinking about the other person. I'm, I'm just, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm off to the other thing. I'm not really here in this moment. Mm-hmm. And because I spend so little time where I actually am, but more time in my anxious future or regrettable past, I wonder like, why am I so tired? I wonder why am I so distracted? I wonder why am I depressed? Why am I anxious? Because I'm not actually living in this present moment. And so one of the other rules of engagement is we spend a lot of time drawing people's attention to what is happening right now in the process. And if we were to say to that grocer, man, I just noticed that you're working really hard and I'm really grateful. In that moment, everybody's attention is drawn to what's happening right here in this moment. And as far as anybody knows, as far as I know, in five minutes, I could be dead from an MI. Well, that wouldn't be pleasant for other people around me. But I mean, like, right, I'm not hoping for that. But the point is, like, I don't know that I have five minutes from now, but I have right now. And this is the world that we practice living in, the one that we only ever have. Another one of the things that is important is, you know, of course, these are mixed gender groups. And, uh, you know, we've had plenty of uh, experiences of people, and when they, when they realize, oh, yeah, there are going to be men and women in the groups, like, it makes them nervous. Right. And as we tell people, look, anytime a male and a female are within like six yards of each other, sex is in play. It's in the room. And by that, I don't mean having sex is in play. I mean, like our, our culture, you know, this is an aside. This is a total aside. You know, we've, uh, you often will see when, uh, when uh, media is produced that is kind of pornographic in nature, there will be the disclaimer that says, for mature audiences only. They used like to, for mature yeah, audiences. Yeah, used to say, anytime when I was a kid, they would say, the following program is rated PG. Parental guidance is suggested. And my mom would go, shh. <laughs> and I'd have to, we, you know, the kids would just have to leave. And they would sit and watch right. their show. Anyway. Yeah. Right. Right. And, and, you know, mature audiences, it's sexuality and nudity right. and all the things, right? And you say, and then... You discover that the, the actual acts that one might witness if you were watching a film of this nature, especially ones that are more explicitly intended to be pornographic, um, the things to which it is, the, 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 those films are appealing are things that are really a lot more about what newborns and infants and toddlers are longing for. I'm just looking, I'm looking for arousal. I'm looking for this. I'm looking for that. Like I'm looking for the breast. I'm looking to be, you know, and like, that's actually really, really, really immature. Hmm. It's really striking to me how filmmakers are so unaware of the irony of how, what they put, you know, their disclaimers out to be like, like is so not that. Right. Yeah, the following program is for immature audiences only. Right, right. And, and of course, and, and this is the point, this is part of how we get fooled. And so this whole notion that because we so quickly, like sexuality just becomes about having sex as I want it, where I want it, how I want it, because I've lost, and we'll talk more about this as we go on, because I've lost the connection, my awareness, that with sexuality, what I'm still looking for is to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. And, you know, how many men have I talked to who I'm inviting to join one of these groups? And they're like, no. Like, what, are there going to be, like, females? Like, bono, like females? In there? And I'm like, yeah. 
And then, and of course, there's all the questions like, well, I might, you know, I, I would be worried that I might, you know, be aroused. I'm worried about, and like, and? Like, as if you're not aroused when you go to church? As if you're not aroused when you're in the board meeting? And like, you think that this is like, this is the only place where this happens? But no, what happens is it happens everywhere. But we don't, you know, we don't have a way to deal, deal with this. We don't have a way to recognize that, oh, what's happening in the room right now is really the activation of the parts of me that haven't been seen, soothed, safe, secure, whether I'm married, single, divorced, widowed. It, it doesn't matter. And we worry about this leading to like, you know, people having intercourse in the middle of the room, right? Or outside of this and so forth and so on, to which we say, well, like, first of all, um, it's not going to happen in the room. I can just assure you, everybody leaves their clothes on. But I also want to say that this is something that is important for us to recognize that we have, since the time we were small, have not been able to name what we long and how then our culture around us channels all this in ways that we aren't even paying attention to that we don't know that it's being channeled. And so we think that it all kind of like, as long as, you know, it, it kind of culminates in orgasm. But as we know, like, you know, when you have orgasm, like when it's over, it's over. And we don't want over, right? We want depth. We want connection. We want this way. And, and so we want to say, look, the importance of having men and women together in these groups is because it really does give us the opportunity to identify that like when, you know, when Sarah is talking, uh, it could be your wife, it could be your sister, it could be your mom. But if any one of those are talking, like you got stuff that you got to deal with. And if it's really Sarah that's activating this, then you're going to have an opportunity to really do this well. And we found that, and, and, and we will come to this in other episodes of when we talk about this more explicitly, that this whole notion of sexuality is important for us to address, to address because so much of our vulnerability and our shame and our trauma is associated with our sexuality. And for us to avoid it means we avoid the very things that we need to be bringing into the light in order for us to tell our stories more truly. And so a lot of this that we're doing in this process is creating the opportunity, I think, for us to really enter into the work of formation, really enter into the work of development, really enter into the work of what we would call becoming more whole, becoming perfect, even as our Father in Heaven is also perfect. We like to talk about three different stages, and we can do this really quickly. Three different stages that I think that are really intriguing to me. One, the first stage that when people enter into this is this notion that, gosh, if I, you know, if, if I uh, go to this group, I'm going to enter into the group so that I can deal with my problems that I have outside of the group. My marriage, my work, my this, my that. So I'm going to go to the group and I'm going to get insight and instruction and help Kind of like going to the, you know, going to the hardware store. I'm going to get my, what I need and I'm going to go home and I'm going to work on the problem that I have. And pretty soon people will start to discover that they've entered into a second stage of development within these groups. And that is, oh, I've learned that there's actually a process that happens here in the group whereby which I don't just go to the hardware store and get tools and I go home. I go to the hardware store and I discover that there are other people coming into the hardware store too. And they also have the same problem with their house or they're, they're this, and they're, we're giving each other tips. And, like, and, and I feel like I'm not by myself. So it's not just a warehouse where I, or a shop where I go to buy stuff and then go home. It's also something where I go and I feel felt, I feel connected to this group. So I don't feel alone 
But the work I still see as being outside of this group. But at some point, and for some, for, for, for many people, this can happen on the very first day. For others, it takes weeks or months. They transition to the third level of development, this third stage in the group, in which they recognize that they've developed so much comfort in the group by naming what their longings are and their griefs and discovering what it means to be seen, soothed, safe, secure, that as they do, they become so comfortable that things at some point start to tumble out of their mouth that make it look like they're talking to their wife, that make it look like they're talking to their mother. And at some point, you say something that hurts somebody else's feelings in the group, or you make somebody mad, or somebody else makes you mad. And before you know it, like the fur is flying. Now, people aren't throwing lamps at each other. Nobody's getting up and walking out. But you discover that, oh my gosh, the work isn't out there. This is the work. That when I do the work here in this group, this body of believers who are together becoming pillars in the house of my God, this is Revelation chapter 3. When I do the work here, everything that happens outside of here is going to be a benefit from what happens in this work where I'm doing this soul care work where who I am in my essence is being brought into the light my longings, my griefs, my traumas, my unfinished business, such that I discover that even in my most painful places, as we'll talk more about later, even in my most painful places, when I'm continually seen, even in painful places that don't go away right away or may not ever go away, the very act of being seen in those places transforms who I am such that when I do go home to my marriage or to my work or to my parenting, I'm not the same person there because of the work that I'm doing here. And this is, as we'll get to the end on our very last episode, we'll talk about what does it mean for us to be in these communities and recognize that what we're really doing is working with the power of the Holy Spirit, practicing for heaven. And that's a lot of what we're really trying to do in this notion of setting proper boundaries of confidentiality, setting proper boundaries with our impulses, but still naming what it is that we long for, even in those impulses, recognizing that this is a process of formation in which we do talk about the mechanics, but those mechanics are really ways of describing the story that we're trying to tell at any given time. And over the course of the rest of our episodes, we're going to include more and more stories of the people who have benefited from these and why we believe that this kind of work isn't just something that gets done effectively in a psychotherapy setting of somebody's private practice in Northern Virginia, but these are things that we can export and extend to our lives in any number of different domains that we occupy. Yeah. It's kind of long-winded. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, it's it's in, so intriguing, this, this whole idea of confessional communities, you know, having never, never really done this experience, having done things that were not, you know, maybe, maybe sort of similar in that, you know, groups and where we're sharing lives and, and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. trying to have this confidentiality set and all this. But I, I will say that those people that I did that with were also in my life outside of mm -hmm. the room. And that's not mm -hmm. the case here, right? These people are, right. this is where they're together. And right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, one, and one, one thing I didn't mention that I think that is, is it a crucial, and, and this is, 
this is as a, you know, and we we don't have time to talk about this today. Right. But like, this has as much to do with physics as it has to do with anything else. This notion that, uh, and 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 we know, like, especially in our community, you know, there are people who end up in a group, and and we do a lot of uh, vetting, as it were, to make sure that the groups that we form are, you know, have people who don't have a lot of like don't have outside contact with each other, which gets increasingly more difficult the more you get referrals that are coming from similar resources. Right. But even so, sometimes when that happens, one of the things that we emphasize is that, okay, let's say that, you know, George and Harry end up, you know, in this same group and they also know that, you know, they're, they're in, you know, they're in, uh, you know, in church together or they're in some community together. And we asked George and Harry not to talk about or discuss anything that goes on in the group. And I don't mean just to discuss what other people talk about, but to talk about their own stuff apart from the group, because keeping all that in the group intensifies and distills the work that the group is doing together. One of the reasons why we help want people to remain to maintain confidence about what they're processing and not talking about you know this with other people is because in so doing, they're going to have that conversation on the golf course or if they're going to over coffee apart from the group. It means that there's something that they experience now that the group doesn't experience. Right. Now, again, this is not like real life. I, I realize in, in that same, and by real life, I take that this is different than other experiences that we have. I want to retract that statement. This is not like real life. All life is real life. There's no part, like this isn't less real than other parts. It is just to say that this practice of keeping the work that we're doing in the group confined to the group I tell people, it's kind of like what happens if you're going to lift weights or if you're going to be involved in an athletic endeavor and you put a stiff a, a sleeve on, on your forearm. You'll see this with football players, mm-hmm. basketball players, or on your bicep or around your leg. What you're doing is that containment helps the muscle group be much more efficient in the work that it does. It protects the muscle group and it allows the muscle group to like be much more like a piston, much more like a single unit. And so the group itself, as we like to say, the group itself begins to take on a life and a story of its own that is made up of these different parts. And confining my storytelling work that I do with these members to this group, it doesn't mean that you can't talk about what you're experiencing personally outside of the group apart. You know, I can, I can go home to my wife and say, man, today in the group, I discovered this and this about myself. I learned this, like I'm, we're having this conversation, like I just like, this is what, you know, I learned that like I, I'm a guy who really has these things with my dad and it showed up there and this is what I'm really discovering about. You can talk about that, but that's different than processing like, well, gosh, I had this fight with Tom in the group because it's easier than to diffuse that and I don't have to confront Tom about like what I'm feeling about right. Tom because I'm going to talk to somebody else about it. But th- again, it helps us tell our story more truly so that... When I do go home and I have the fight with my wife, I can actually have that conversation with her because I've been practicing what does it really mean for me to deal in the real world with real people in real time and space. And, you know, again, this is, this is not what I would continue to you know, call this a substitute for church. But as we've often said, in any 90-minute session of these confessional communities, if we were to start with two pieces of worship music midway through have a five minute scriptural textural homily and at the end we have the Eucharist we'd have church 
we would have the work of the Holy Spirit who is bookending its presence in the worship of God, in the proclamation of the word, in the presence of the body and blood of Jesus, all with the assumption of the resurrection and the ascension and the Pentecostal coming of the Spirit, such that this becomes a body of formation wherein which people leave this on a regular basis to go out and be outposts of beauty and goodness in the world, but never without all the hard work that is to be entailed and recognizing that evil will always be the wolf at our door. All the more reason for why we need to come back the next week to be reminded of who we are and who we belong to. Hmm. Well, I'm glad that we're going to be talking a little more about this in, in future episodes because I want to learn more about it. It's uh, it, it's exciting stuff, you know, um, this idea of other people's stories affecting me in a way that I can learn more about my own story and um, learn how to tell my story more truly. So it's great. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you for today. Um, we went. Thank you. Yep. And bro, I'm, I know by the time people get this, uh, this day, this pristine day in September will have passed, but I just want to wish you all the best on the golf course today. <laughs> And uh, please give uh, those two guys who don't know me, who uh, are from the evil empire from the north, um, and that's not Canada, but as a native of Ohio, they will know who I'm talking about. Please give them my best. <laughs> I will. And tell, them I, 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 and tell them I hope that sometime between now and 2050 that Michigan can beat Ohio State. I wish them good luck. Thank you. And I'm going to tee it high and let it fly. <laughs> Love you, Kurt. Love you, man. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at BeingKnownPod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.